Okay, welcome aboard to the Counter Vortex once again with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, opening up with some music from uh, a guy by the name of Tenzin Chogyal, a Tibetan musician playing the Dramyin, if I am pronouncing it correctly, or the Tibetan lute. And I actually, uh, I got this CD directly from Tenzin at an event I attended here in New York City of um, students for a free Tibet uh, last month. And uh, I want to give a a big hearty thank you and shout out to Tenzin Shogyal for um, giving us this great disc. You can check him out online at Tenzin jogyal.com traditional tibetan musician uh, does some very uh, creative stuff with um, collaborating with other musicians based in australia as a matter of fact and uh, i want to give a shout out as well to my uh, buds in students for a free tibet and make note of some of the campaigns that they've been waging over uh, the course of uh, the past several months and will continue to be waging as we go deeper into 2019. First and foremost, the reason I'm playing this music now is because March 10th, which is next Sunday, is going to be Tibetan Uprising Day, and students who are free Tibet are going to be holding a, uh, it seems like it's going to be an all-day event at uh, Codman Plaza in Brooklyn here in New York City. It's going to be starting at 8 a.m., which is a ghastly early time, if you ask me, but it's going to be going on through 6 p.m., so I'm not sure... um, exactly what the highlight is going to be. I'm going to try to uh, try to put in an appearance if I can uh, actually get over the Brooklyn Bridge on my bicycle and out to Codman Plaza, which is just directly over the Brooklyn Bridge from the Lower East Side where I am sometime on Sunday, March 10th. So um, hope to see you all there. And among the, the vital campaigns that Students for a Free Tibet have been waging is uh, for freedom for Tashi Wangchuk, who was actually an advocate of survival of the Tibetan language, who has been uh, pushing for a, a greater role for the Tibetan language in the educational system in Chinese-controlled Tibet. And uh, for his advocacy, he has been imprisoned by the Chinese authorities. So they've been pushing for his release Another one I want to mention, because it particularly ties into something which has been weighing very, very heavily on my mind, is the pressure campaign that Tibetan activists have been waging all around the world against Google for its plans to um, develop an app which they are calling Dragonfly, which will censor search results so as to um, appease the Chinese authorities and thereby get back into China. Because as we all know, um, Facebook and Google alike have been barred in China. They are not allowed through the so-called Great Firewall for the past several years. The search engine, which um, uh, sort of it brings back, uh, you know, approved results for the Chinese authorities, which is kind of like um, the, uh, the, the Chinese Google is Baidu. And there was actually a, uh, a very interesting sort of uh, interactive exhibit, which was done at a, an art gallery here on the Lower East Side of Manhattan a couple of years back, which I uh, wrote about for the Villager newspaper by a uh, Manhattan-based artist by the name of Joyce Eugene Lee who actually had uh, two computer terminals set up side by side, or maybe it was like one with a split screen, uh, one of which, you know, you enter the search results for um, uh, any term that you're looking for 
uh, on Google and the other on Baidu. And of course, you know, if you search for um, such things as, uh, uh, you know, uh, Michael Jackson or anything quotidian like that, the results will be very much the same. However, if you search for such things as Tibet, Tiananmen Square, or Taiwan, the three traditional taboo teas in uh, Chinese political culture, you can imagine that you get very, very, very different results. Um, Particularly, uh, people would search for uh, Tiananmen Square, and on Google, you actually get, uh, you know, the iconic images from the the protest movement in 1989, which was so brutally put down, whereas on Baidu, you get nothing but, you know, sort of generic tourist shots of Tiananmen Square. So um, for the past several years, Google has been barred from China, and now Google is trying to get back in through the development of this um, so-called Dragonfly app, which will craft the, um, the search results, essentially, I would assume, to mimic those of Baidu. And then if they actually manage to get back through the firewall, I guess uh, Google and Baidu are going to be competing for, for those um, 1.3 billion Chinese eyes, which, of course, also includes Tibetan eyes, Mongolian eyes, Uyghur eyes, etc. <clears throat> that is to say, within the boundaries of the People's Republic of China, whether or not you consider those to be the legal boundaries or not, which is a whole question which I'm not going to get into right now. This is utterly sinister, and it actually has, you know, huge implications beyond Tibet. So Students for a Free Tibet are, uh, you know, urging China to dump this plan for uh, the so-called Dragonfly app. But this has implications which go beyond Google and also beyond Tibet. For starters, you know, Facebook has also been uh, angling to try to get through the firewall and to get into the vast Chinese market. There was a, a case which I blogged about on my website, countervortex.org, a couple of years ago, where um, a post by the Beijing-based Tibetan writer, Tsering Wozer, uh, showing the um, self-immolation of a Tibetan Buddhist monk, was removed by Facebook for apparently being too explicit. Now, you can see gobs and gobs and gobs of um, what I call atrocity pornography on Facebook every day. And a lot of it, you know, is really sinister because when people are trying to, you know, win you over to a particular cause, they'll just, you know, take sort of generic stock footage of a mangled dead baby that's been hit by artillery. And, you know, it doesn't matter if the uh, the viewer is trying to incite outrage about Syria or Gaza or wherever, you know, missiles are raining down on civilian populations, uh, they can just take any picture of a of a dead baby and just sort of present it decontextualized like that and, and provoke an emotional response. So I'm really, really opposed to this kind of exploitation. And very often, you know, there's been time and time again, uh, you know, um, uh, Facebook memes have been caught out actually using you know, some ghastly atrocity image from one context and trying to pass it off as actually being from another context. Uh, And, you know, I think this is really sinister. If you're going to be using images like this, for starters, I think it should be done sparingly and judiciously, if at all. 
But, um, you know, certainly it should be done with um, you know, respect for what the images actually represent and not just exploiting some poor dead baby to elicit an emotional response, even if the dead baby isn't from the context that you're trying to elicit an emotional response about. Yeah, yeah. But um, in contrast to, um, to this kind of thing, uh, the image which was posted by Tsering Wozer was actually of a particular Buddhist monk with a particular name. And his name happened to be Kaiseng Yeshi. And it was um, presented in context with a, you know, perfect, impeccable sense of didacticism. And this was what Facebook chose to remove. This was back in um, uh, four years ago now, back in January of 2015. And immediately after that, uh, just like days after that, Mark Zuckerberg made his um, high-profile visit to Beijing, where um, he met with China's top official for censorship, the uh, minister for cyberspace administration, a guy by the name of Liu Wei. Now, um, I'm not sure he's still in office. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg is still in office. <laughs> well, the office being the, the CEO of Facebook, one of the most powerful positions on the planet, yet nobody elected him. So uh, uh, now, fortunately, you know, little has come of all of this in the um, in the intervening years. And uh, Facebook has not made it across the Great Firewall. But if they do, and there's a certain sense of inevitability to it, because, you know, the the Chinese market is so big and so potentially lucrative. And if they ever actually do, you know, make the compromises that are going to be necessary to get through, the implications for this go well beyond Tibet. Uh, there have already been cases where, um, uh, similarly, the Turkish authorities have prevailed upon Facebook and other social media to remove posts which are um, deemed to be propaganda on behalf of the, uh, the Kurdish revolutionaries in the, um, in the east of Anatolia. Um, so it's easy to anticipate where all of this is leading, Right. Once the, uh, you know, the giants of the Internet, such as Google and Facebook and YouTube, once they have really completely colonized the Internet and become the predominant or sole media of information exchange, then, you know, after having lured us all in with this, you know, seeming free for all, they'll, you know, pull the rug out from under us by acquiescing to the censorship demands of the highest paying despots. And, uh, you know, a couple of years down the line, after Xi Jinping relents and lets Facebook and Google through the Great Firewall, it will be impossible to read just about anything on either of these platforms about Tibet or Tiananmen Square or Taiwan, that were anything related to the Taiwan independence movement, I should say, or the Uyghurs, or, ironically, about Internet censorship in China. <laughs> And you can expect other governments, such as, uh, you know, the, the burgeoning dictatorships of, um, of Erdogan in Turkey and Putin in Russia, etc. And ultimately, you know, the burgeoning dictatorship of Donald Trump here in the United States to follow China's example by making such demands once they have seen how cooperative Facebook and Google are. And um, Israel has also apparently joined the authoritarian regimes in leading this charge towards, uh, you know, global digital totalitarianism, demanding that Google suppress footage of Israeli war crimes. And uh, the reason this uh, weighs 
so heavily on my mind. At the moment, I will confess, here is where I'm going to make the, uh, the conversation a little bit more personal. But as they say, the personal is the political, is that I feel that I have been, um, you know, personally screwed over by Google. All right, so here's where I'm going to just do a little bit of personal griping. You know, as I uh, emphasize all of the time, uh, what I do on my website, countervortex.org, is I really struggle to produce at least one post every day. Now, it's blogging for the most part, as opposed to journalism. I also do journalism where I actually, you know, go out into the field and interview people and get firsthand material. This is blogging, where I am uh, producing digests, if you will, perhaps with a little bit of commentary about recent events in the news. But um, first of all, what makes it different is, uh, you know, the stuff which I cover. I try to uh, not just uh, follow the news cycle, but um, make an emphasis to cover small wars and small uh, peasant autonomy struggles and land recovery struggles and so on, which are, uh, you know, off of the the big, you know, mainstream media radar screen, if you will, and outside of, you know, the the news cycle, um, such as ongoing serious coverage about the struggle in Tibet and, uh, and, you know, struggle in places that people have never heard of or very few people who aren't actually from the region have heard of, such as Ambazonia. On the last podcast, we did an interview with um, um, independence uh, activist from, from Ambazonia, which is seeking its independence from Cameroon, much as the Tibetans are seeking independence from China. So um, that's the first thing I do which makes Counter Vortex different. The second thing I do, which makes Counter Vortex different, is that I really strive to be very, very rigorous and factual and provide a lot of, make it very, very detail-dense and actually provide a lot of information, give you your most bang for your buck in terms of information and make every post that I write as concise and as comprehensive as possible and just, you know, fill the reader in with reliable information as opposed to just giving you spin and tood and worse yet, you know, giving you bad information. So, I mean, the two aspects of the current media environment, which are really dystopian, is, you know, for starters, sloppiness and vagueness and then, you know, just plain old fake news, just pseudo news, which has just become absolutely ubiquitous. I'm not even going to dwell on that point. There are all of these, outside of the mainstream media, there's so many of these, you know, pseudo news websites, which um, I'm not going to mention any names offhand, but are, uh, you know, completely propagandistic and unreliable and just, uh, you know, just angling for clicks and uh, trying to, uh, you know, uh, build a readership by telling people what they want to hear. Then you've got, you know, even the mainstream stuff, right? AP, Reuters, etc. Even that is becoming increasingly dumbed down. And to me, this is the real problem with the, you know, the so-called MSM, the so-called mainstream media. It's not the right-wing bias that the lefties are always complaining about, and it's not the left-wing bias that the righties are always complaining about. It's the sloppiness and the vagueness. For instance, 
the um, airstrikes that India just carried out in Pakistan over the latest escalation of violence in the divided province of Kashmir, which, by the way, is, uh, you know, just across the Himalayas from Tibet and Xinjiang or East Turkestan, very much in this um, same region of the world where South Asia and Central Asia come together. And most of the media reports were quick to note that India's airstrikes within Pakistani territory were the first since the war of 1971. This is certainly worth noting. But they didn't actually say where the airstrikes were. And some reports were actually inaccurately saying that the airstrikes were in Kashmir, which they were not. And it took a great deal of digging on my part to actually get the specifics that the airstrikes were actually on a so-called or a supposed terrorist training camp at a town by the name of Balakot in um, Pakistan's Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province. Now, this is the kind of information that, as far as I'm concerned, it should be in the lead. It should be in the first paragraph. And um, the, the, the wire accounts which I read, AP Reuters, did not actually mention it at all. They merely said that uh, India carried out airstrikes in Pakistan, not even saying what was targeted, much less the exact location of the airstrikes. Finally, I was able to, um, by going to a really good website, particularly for covering Asian affairs, called The Diplomat, and uh, Kashmir Watch, of course, and um, some media outlets from within the subcontinent, actually had the information. And I actually wrote up a little account which is on my website, also noting a, uh, another angle, which was um, not really covered very much by, uh, by media outside of the region, which is that in the aftermath of the big um, militant attack in Kashmir last week, which um, sparked this latest escalation, Kashmiri students and shopkeepers and so on across India have been violently attacked by right-wing mobs. <sighs> so, uh, you know... Um, that what I wrote up was actually entitled Kashmiris Under Attack Across India. You can uh, Google that. It's on my website, countervortex.org. So, you know, I work hard at this every day. I produce at least one such account every day. And even if it is about something like um, this new crisis over Kashmir, which actually has been getting some coverage, I try to fill in the details that the mainstream accounts are leaving out. And I tried to find an angle on it, which is actually affecting people on the ground in the region, rather than just, you know, taking this big geopolitical view of, you know, what it means for, for readers in New York City <laughs> and what it means for, you know, the United States. So uh, actually trying to, you know, look at the people on the ground as human beings, imagine that, and not merely as, you know, little pawns on the, the great geostrategic uh, chessboard. So uh, that's what I try to do every day, and it's damn hard work, and I've been doing it for 15 years now, going on, oh, no, 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 more than that, 18 years now, going on 18 years, because I launched this website in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. And uh, for several years, we were syndicated on Google News. We no longer are. A part of the reason for this, I believe, I'm not even sure, because uh, Google won't actually respond to me and give me a reason. But uh, I believe that the reason might be that we are not mobile-friendly. Uh, really, to look at my website, you've got to look at it on a... Um, on a computer screen, not a mobile device. 
So we're going to have to give the website a makeover at a certain point in the near future, which gives me a great deal of angst. (laughs) But um, meanwhile, you know, I think it should be syndicated on Google News. And what's particularly irksome about the whole thing is that so many of these completely unreliable pseudo-news propaganda websites, which I am always railing against, are, in fact, on Google News. Whereas Counter Vortex, where I strive so hard to be, uh, you know, extremely factual and extremely rigorous and extremely, um, you know, to put to put the facts out front and let the facts speak for themselves rather than beating people over the head with propaganda. Um, We are not syndicated on Google News. Another couple of things that just uh, happen to impact me personally. If you Google my name, you will find out, the first thing you will see when you Google my name, Bill Weinberg, is that um, I was born in 1941. I can assure you I was not born in 1941. They are confusing me with another Bill Weinberg, the Bill Weinberg who um, is with the University of Kentucky and did the oral history of Appalachia. He, I believe, was born in 1941. But Bill Weinberg, the producer of Counter Vortex and uh, the former um, WBAI radio commentator and the author of a book such as Homage to Chiapas, The New Indigenous Struggles in Mexico, I was not born in 1941. My parents hadn't even reached puberty in 1941. Thank you very much. So um, there's some misinformation right there. So that's, you know, one problem with Google is that, no, not everything that you see there is accurate. The first thing that comes up, and this is not on any website. This is just what Google is saying in its little, uh, you know, information blurb that comes out up about me when you search for my name. So that's the first problem with Google is people tend to look at it as, you know, this um, means to access the entire repository of the collective knowledge of the human race. And it is not. There is loads and loads and loads of misinformation out there, which is on Google. Not everything that you see on Google is accurate, to say the goddamned least. Now, Google, since the, uh, you know, the scandals of, um, of recent years about fake news and so on, and how it lubricated the election of Donald Trump in 2016, Google has been taking some measures to try to correct this. And I think that they've tweaked their algorithm. For years, when you searched for my name, one of the first pages which would come up, you know, after my, my page on Wikipedia and so on, is you would get my page, the page about me on Metapedia. Now, Metapedia is like the neo-Nazi Wikipedia. It is a virulently anti-Semitic, openly Hitler-glorifying website produced by neo-Nazis where, you know, they've got a kind of like a hit page on every, um, you know, Jewish left-wing intellectual out there, including me and, you know, Noam Chomsky and all the others, uh, you know, where they're, you know, dissing me in the most hateful terms as a, uh, you know, a Jewish communist menace to humanity. (laughs) I mean, you can find it. I encourage you not to find it because I don't want them getting hits. Now, for years before my uh, my bio on, um, you know, the Nation Institute website and before, you know, my work, my journalistic work for uh, The Villager and so on, before any of those results would come up, my uh, the, the website page for these that these damn Nazis on Metapedia had created for me would come up. Now that 
has changed over the past, I believe, uh, maybe year, two years. That's changed. Now, um, Metapedia is uh, is no longer coming up on the first page of search results for my name. You have to actually, you know, wade through several pages of search results before the Metapedia page comes up. And I think that this is due to Google having tweaked their algorithm so as to de-emphasize, you know, spotty, unreliable websites. And that's a good thing. And that may also have to do with the reason that, uh, you know, Counter Vortex is no longer syndicated on Google News because, you know, it's viewed as weird. It's viewed as fringe. You know, um, it's called Counter Vortex. And to me, the name means something. And I actually have a page on the site explaining what it means. But, you know, it's a weird name. And, uh, you know, and, it, and it's a fringe website. I mean, this is what I'm complaining about, right? The fact that it's fringe, it's, it's you know, it's been marginalized by by Google and so on. So um, I think, you know, maybe in their um, in their crackdown on fringe websites, this is a part of the reason that they've um, purged Counter Vortex from Google News. And this would be a case of, you know, throwing out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, I'm glad that they've de-emphasized neo-Nazi websites like Metapedia. But um, unfortunately, you know, I might have been collateral damage in this in this crackdown, so to speak. And I suppose if I really want to take the big picture and look at it from the um, the standpoint of the greater good, maybe it's worthwhile that Counter Vortex has been purged from Google News. If that was the price of getting their algorithm to de-emphasize websites like Metapedia, you know, maybe <laughs> from the standpoint of the greater good. It's worthwhile, and I shouldn't complain, but nonetheless, we're going to try to get Counter Vortex back on Google News when we eventually get around to giving it this makeover uh, when we're going to be mobile-friendly. I'm really um, dreading it because I'm afraid that it's going to upset my workflow and cause a lot of um, uh, disruption and angst in my life, but nonetheless, it's music we're going to have to face. Okay, so... um, those are, uh, you know, a couple of problems right there. Not all of the information which readily comes up on Google is, in fact, accurate. Some of the, uh, you know, the, the stuff which you get on Google is, see, there's this weird thing where, you know, there was this slogan, you know, information wants to be free and everybody can be a journalist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what this has meant is that, uh, you know, all of these fly-by-night websites produced by people who really have no journalistic chops and have no journalistic ethics are now, you know, um, as readily accessible online as AP and Reuters and the other mainstream sources, which themselves, as I just complained, are being dumbed down. But this bogus equivalism where any jerk who throws up a website thinks that they're just as legitimate as, um, as Reuters or Associated Press is really, really dangerous. And Google, you know, whatever measures which they've lately taken to try to correct this, they have been completely complicit in this. And they continue to be completely complicit in this. And Facebook even more so than Google. And it's really terrifying that more and more people, rather than, you know, going to uh, the New York Times each morning, and I'm not here to glorify the New York Times. I have my own criticisms of the New York Times, right? But, uh, you know, all the people, you know, are getting their news rather than going to the New York Times every morning. They're, uh, you know, just going on to Facebook this morning to see what pops up on their feed is utterly, utterly, utterly dangerous and sinister because what, what you're getting hasn't been vetted by anybody. And also, it is news which by, if you want to call it news, which by its very nature 
has been tweaked to reinforce your world view. It's material which you are going to, quote, unquote, like. And that's why you're seeing it, because you have liked similar material. So by its very nature, it is entrenching groupthink, as I have ranted before. Okay, another problem is that there's this illusion, again, that the entire repository of knowledge of the human race is all online. Not true, okay? The World Wide Web has only been around since the 1990s. And it is only very um, slowly, and beginning with the big outlets like the New York Times, that um, you know all of the uh, the pre-digital material, and there's you know obviously a great deal of it. It's only very very slowly that that pre-digital material is being loaded up onto the web. So I have personally experienced this. You know, I mean, journalism which I have produced and journalism which I spent a lot of time and effort working on say, back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, is not online. And, uh, you know, there have been, uh, you know, um, news stories and events about stuff from the pre-digital era, which I've tried to uh, find reference to online and been unable to find it. So there is, uh, you know, loads and loads and loads of information from the pre-digital era, which is not making it onto Google, not making it onto the internet at all. And my fear is that as every other medium of information other than the internet is basically being consigned to oblivion, that all of this this information is being consigned to oblivion along with it. And it's all going down the proverbial, you know, Orwellian memory hole. And even if, I don't know, can you still go to a library and look at old um, copies of newspapers and magazines on, um, on microfilm? Can you even still do that? Even if you can, nobody's doing it apart from, you know, a few extremely dedicated, square, fuddy-duddy old researchers. This technology, I have to emphasize again, it's um, by its very nature, it's so deeply dystopian in so many different ways. Now, of course... Uh, you know, I hate to keep on reiterating the point, you know, as tempting as the Luddite position is <laughs> of abolish the Internet and smash computers, as tempting as it is, you know, I recognize that it's uh, it's not really a realistic approach to the problem, you know, and that uh, what we have to be demanding Internet freedom first and foremost, and we have to be demanding, you know, that, um, for instance, that the great firewall of China come down as opposed to being imposed worldwide, which is obviously what um, Xi Jinping would like to see. And uh, I would also argue that beyond that, we also have to, um, and this is an even more difficult prospect in some ways, that we have to develop the discipline of intelligent use of the internet and not just go for what's readily available, you know, that pops up on a Google search and not just share stuff on Facebook willy-nilly without vetting it, but actually, you know, develop the skills to discern information which, in fact, is reliable and information which is not reliable, which is propagandistic, which is warped, or which is just plain vague and sloppy. And this is... um, the more difficult prospect, because this involves a discipline which we have to cultivate ourselves. And it is not merely something where, you know, we have to make a demand on the on the authorities, a demand on the powers that be. 
That's what makes it, you know, the more difficult prospect. And uh, finally, I really urge that, um, you know, as I've urged before, that there has to be a place in the world for printed matter and um, and actually taking it to the streets and spending time in the real world. Imagine that in meat space as opposed to cyberspace, if you will. And, uh, you know, actually reading real newspapers. One of the reasons I like writing for The Villager, even though it's just a... Um, a local downtown Manhattan paper is that they actually still continue to produce a print edition. And I can actually, you know, sit down uh, with a, a cup of coffee and read it printed on paper rather than looking at a goddamn screen. And I, you know, as I've said many times before, I do not, I do not leave the house with a mobile device. I refuse to do that. You know, I've surrendered to the Borg in as much as every minute that I'm home, I'm online. But when I leave the house, I'm not online. I don't have any kind of mobile device that I carry around with me. And I like the idea of being able to uh, sit down in front of a plate of food and a cup of coffee and actually reading a newspaper which is printed on paper. Gee, imagine that. And, uh, and so I urge you to do that. Patronize your local newspaper at least once in a while. And by newspaper, I mean newspaper, not website. Or, or more to the point, produce your own. There used to be, back in the 1980s, was this tremendous kind of, you know, underground scene of, you know, people producing their own zines, and people were actually sending them back and forth in the mail, and, you know, and giving them out at, um, at social events and so on. I'd like to see more and more of that kind of thing. All right, just to wrap up and to bring the convo back to where we began, one of the... Uh, one of the great things when I went to the event at the Students for a Free Tibet space over on um, 14th Street on the east side of Manhattan for an event there a couple of weeks ago. Well, for starters, it was an actual space space, an actual geographic space. We were actually meeting in the flesh and not just online for a, um, an extremely interesting presentation. And I actually picked up a uh, copy of the Students for a Free Tibet 2018 year in review newsletter so and it's actually printed on paper imagine that <laughs> so i really applaud students for a free tibet of actually printing a newsletter on paper with nice color photos although it's not glossy paper and uh, it's like a kind of like heavy stock newsprint which is better because it's easier to recycle but um and it's actually stapled in the middle remember when newspapers used to be stapled in the middle or magazines or zines used to be stapled in the um, in the binding, so uh, big, big, big shout out and big kudos to um, students for a free Tibet for continuing to produce a actual printed newsletter. And um, I'm hoping to join you all, and I certainly encourage all of our listeners to join them all at the Tibetan Uprising Day commemoration, which they are going to be holding on Sunday, March 10th, at Cadman Plaza in Brooklyn, just over the Brooklyn Bridge from Lower Manhattan. Uh, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., I guess. Sometime in that window, I'm going to try to show up if I can actually um, bike over the Brooklyn Bridge before 6 p.m., because I'm probably going to have some work to do earlier in the day. So hope to see you all there. Commemorating, by the way, the uh, if I didn't say it earlier, the 1959 Tibetan uprising against um, the... Uh, People's Republic of China occupation of Tibet when they actually um, started to rein in the um, autonomous powers 
of the Tibetan nation and uh, really began the whole dystopian situation, which has unfolded in the generation since then. So an extremely important day. And of course, that's when the Dalai Lama and the exile government fled across the, uh, the Himalayas into India, or I should say the, the Dalai Lama and his government fled across the, the mountains into India and established their exile government at Dharmasala, India. So a, a very, uh, very important day in um in the history of the Tibetan struggle. So uh, I urge you all to uh, show up at Kadma Plaza and um, see what Students for a Free Tibet have got to say. Actually, an important anniversary because, it, you know, 1959 to 2019, 60 years, 60 years of the Tibetan struggle. Okay, this has been the uh, Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Join the resistance, including against Google and for a free Tibet. Catch you next time, and we're going to go out with, uh, once again, Tenzin Chogyal from his album Heartstrings, playing the Dramyin, or Tibetan lute. Okay, see you in Common Plaza on March 10th, and rant on you next time. <laughs> <laughs>